Now on RTE Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this edition of the programme, Stephen Barlow, composer, pianist, artistic director of Buxton Arts Festival and conductor of Coanga by Frederick Delius, the opening opera of the forthcoming 2015 Wexford Opera Festival. Stephen Barlow is passionate about opera and, of his own admission, a relatively late convert to the art. I spoke with him in Wexford recently as he was familiarising himself with the National Opera House there and preparing to conduct Coanga by Frederick Delius. I began by asking him if conducting was a path on which he had consciously set out. No, I didn't really set out to be a conductor. I think an awful lot of younger conductors now own up to having a fascination for conducting from a very early age. And a one one sort of one-track view of their progress. Um, and they let nothing stand in the way. And they're saying, I'm a conductor when they're 16, 17, 18. That wasn't the way that I really landed in it. I played a lot of instruments. I knew that I didn't want to be... Um, a concert pianist, far too hard. Um, I knew I didn't want to be a professional countertenor. I knew composing was important to me, but I, I knew that I didn't want to do that. In fact, my earliest ambition was to become a cathedral organist. Well, of course. I mean, I was a chorister and I, I started the organ very early. But actually, it was the whole business of music, the love of music itself, that was most important. So the experience of playing instruments for me, was uh, just sheer delight on the one hand. But secondly, it was giving me a much, a a sort of all-round view of the whole process of music making, how instruments worked. Um, I uh, covered a vast range of repertoire as a player and a singer. And then when I went to Cambridge, I got rather bored after a term. And that's the, (laughs) this is the simple thing. Um, Because, of course, your time is not mapped out for you when you go to university and you have to grow up rather quickly. And um, a great friend of mine at that time was a young fellow called Simon Rattle. And uh, Simon and I had met when we played in the National Youth Orchestra. I was timpanist and he was playing the piano in in Bartok uh, with Boulez conducting. And I was sitting there listening to a concert next to Simon and said, oh, God, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. There isn't enough happening. (laughs) And he said, for goodness sake, conduct. And of course, I was already conducting the choir at Trinity College, where I was organ scholar. And then a couple of other friends uh, also got on my case and said, you're going to do a little piece of Stravinsky, the concertino, in a concert on the weekend. And I did it, and I was away. I mean, I simply didn't stop conducting all the time I was at Cambridge. But even then, when I came out of Cambridge, I went to the Guildhall to do postgrad conducting, which didn't really answer a lot of questions. I learned not to put the baton behind my head, um, not to bend my knees. And I was also playing professionally, continuo and percussion. And even then, I thought I would perhaps go another way. I applied for a second master's position at Harrow, um, and he promptly said, well, you're a very good piano player, but you really need to go and do what you're supposed to be doing. 
So then I got a job as a repetitor at Kent Opera Glyndebourne, and finally the penny dropped, and Glyndebourne gave me the Rake's Progress to conduct in my second year there. And I was there. I was off and, uh, you know, running. Were there particular conductors whose, whose work you'd admired? It must have been fascinating, for instance, to see Boulez. He was um, a profound influence on anybody that you came to touch with. But uh, but you must remember, this was 1970, and, and Pierre hardly spoke any English. Um, and he was also um, conducting phenomenally accurately, fundamentally interested in total accuracy. That was his aim when he set out, because he, he said that contemporary music wasn't really being represented accurately. It, he was fabulously clear, fabulously organised, and we all fell in love with with this dissection was like microbiology of a score done with an ear that was so true and a direction that was so clear to him and and became clear to us we did the right of spring he was um, his interpretation was iconic he became a much uh, a slightly different influencer i saw him rehearse please long plea when it was new I was in rehearsals with the BBC Symphony. And then as he began to develop, I saw a side that I really took to my heart. I saw him conduct a whole Ravel, Daphnis and Chloe at the proms, which I still have in my memory as one of the most profound performances in that it was warm, but it was also crystal clear. You could hear everything. But to move on, in my teens... I loved Barbara Olley's recordings. Barbara Olley's Sibelius, Barbara Olley's Elgar, Barbara Olley's Mahler. He influenced me an enormous amount. And then, of course, going to Glyndebourne, um, one of my greatest heroes of all, um, I played for Bernard Heiting in several operas. And he's remained, for me, one of the most spiritually connected conductors. He empowers musicians. He allows musicians to play and steers, encourages with... uh, He's got a very analytical mind about form, but he doesn't worry too much about detail. He doesn't get stuck in what Simon Rattle called cosmetics. You know, this crotchet's too long, this quaver's too short. He has a very clear analytical mind, but you feel that the orchestras are all able to bring their own musicality to the table. I learnt probably most from him and a great deal too from Andrew Davis. They couldn't be more chalk and cheese, but I played for them both at Glyndebourne, and that's really, um, as my hands began to move as a conductor, those are the two that got into the way that I think about conducting. I'm really interested in that idea of, of, of your hands beginning to move as a conductor, and you moved them as you said that, and I can see it, and you, you almost see the flow, the potential flow of, of, of music with that. Is that something that almost came naturally out of your own grounding in music, your, your, your deep grounding in music? Or was there also a, a process of learning and talking to other conductors? A conductor cannot teach another conductor. I know that the conservatoires have courses. People um, say they've studied with this maestro, this teacher. This You can teach gesture, how to make gestures, but all you're doing then is imitating because it's the way that a gesture makes contact with a sound and also makes, makes sense to a player. So if a player simply sees a gesture that is clearly founded upon a pure discipline rather than coming out of the music, something in them turns off. It's not natural. 
And then the, 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 there is the other thing that you can do between conductors. You can talk about how you persuade orchestras to work. This is an instinctive matter, and it's got a huge amount to do with your love of musicians, your patience, your wish to understand how they feel, your, your wish to understand what their stylistic reference is with the music that they're playing. So you have to come forward to an orchestra. Right? An awful lot of the greatest conductors I know start rehearsals by playing, not talking, not imagining you're going to contribute an enormous amount, unless you're extremely aged like Schulte and you haven't got time to hang around. He, he just got stuck in within a bar. But the point is you need to feel an orchestra, and the way you do that is, is in your hands. Having said that, as you get older... It becomes much more from within your body, your whole body. And I consider that some of the greatest conductors have an element of the ballet dancer in them because their whole body is communicating. If you really look closely at a conductor from the front, you can see the whole body is moving. The, the tick, tick, tick of a finger is one thing, but it doesn't communicate uh, very much about the music. It must become a whole-body thing so that you are at ease and so that you show no tension, except when tension is required. How do you prepare to conduct? Every conductor, I think, has a different way of preparing because it's a, it's a personal matter. You have to have a, a personal feeling for it, totally unique to you. Although the, the most emphasis is not on that. That becomes something that is secondary to understanding what the score is telling you. And I'm a great believer in the score being all you have as a link to the composer. And the composer made his own decisions sitting at his desk about what he would specify and what he would take for granted what he couldn't perhaps specify, but you can read in between the lines. For example, you might see a page where every instrument is marked forte. Some composers will specify all orchestral balance, but that might not necessarily work in one building as opposed to another. It might not necessarily work with a singer that you have. But th th this area of a composer showing you quite a lot, but not everything, is, um, is an interesting one for a conductor to get to grips with. Every marking a composer makes, allegro, um, piano, espressivo, um, hairpins, um, uh, you know, little bits of orchestration that, that you see are very particular. All of these elements you, you need to see, analyse, and then take on. Um, I'm a great believer in, in the score showing you almost everything. If I have a problem understanding the flow of a piece, I will always go back to the score to follow the score as accurately as I can. I don't believe conductors are composers as well. I think the two jobs are very specific, and I believe the conductor's job is to purvey the score so having said that, the, the way I prepare a score, like Koanga, is simply, you know, as far ahead as possible, I will simply begin to turn the page and turn the page quite quickly because that begins a process of the thoughts becoming subliminal about the music. Sooner or later, a curiosity builds and I begin to look more closely 
and the more closely you you look, the more you find. I may listen to some of the composer's other works because I, I knew quite a lot of Delius, but it's not done very much now, and I haven't conducted very much for a long time, so I would find references for it. I did have a, a very good look at what Charlie Groves did in his 74 recording. It's the only real recording that there is, so that was important, but I... Now, if someone's uh, playing it, I can't hear it. You mustn't hear it. Further to that, I begin to play bits on the piano if I need to. Um, but that can sometimes be disappointing because it's the piano. It's not um, orchestra with bass clarinets and cor anglais. And, um, all of this is just to say that I gradually build a picture. I don't spend hours and hours and hours with a pencil poring over specific pages. Gradually, the process becomes such that I then begin to feel that I've got a view on the structure. And it's the structure that one brings to early rehearsals to show the parameters that, that everybody has to exist within. And then the detail begins, you hope, to emerge organically in rehearsal. You're also a composer, and you talk there about how conductors are not composers, unless, of course... You are, as in your case. But yes, separate areas. However, I presume that being a composer bolsters your strength in a way as, as a conductor, the possibility of it, and vice versa, that, that, that the two, when, when they meet, those sort of reaches of understanding help to illuminate each other. My sympathy is, as a composer and a conductor, for a piece like this, for example, my my sympathies extend to imagining what Delius must have been thinking, why he ha he brings a scene to a full close before launching off again. Did he simply give up or, you know, and think, oh, I can't join this? Um, or did he want applause? You, you have to consider these things. Or was he thinking that there was actually a way of making that transition work even if there's a double bar. My sympathies extend that way simply because I know what it's like to draw the double bar and make the decision. People forget that composers make profound decisions for them that they have thought about endlessly at great pains alone and um, each decision has to be respected. It's all too easy, you see, as a conductor. If And there have been all sorts of people who said all conductors should compose. I mean, Furtwängler composed, you know. Isopekka Salonen is a wonderful composer. I, I, too, believe that conductors should compose. I think I've become a better composer because I became a conductor. And one of the reasons I also became a conductor was because I was interested in composition and the way a piece is constructed. So I'm not looking for electricity off the page that fills me with passion to be in the thick of it. I really feel that conductor is part of the process of bringing a composer's inspiration and hard work to the stage and to the concert hall. Having said that, I must say, I heard a wonderful um, conversation between Edmund Tracy and Beecham from something like 1959, when Edmund Tracy, who changed his accent slightly from the, between the time, 59 and the time I knew him, it, it, it was rather wonderful. Um, Sir Thomas, you knew Frederick Delius terribly well. 
Um, did you did you talk to him at all about the pieces when you were um, conducting them? And Beecham Chortle said, "Good God, no! I tried once or twice." Uh, Frederick said, "Oh God, I've forgotten. Do what you like." <laughs> <laughs> so, you, uh, what can you say? Tell me about your own opera, King. Um, this was an opera that meant a great deal to me, actually, because I was a chorister at Canterbury and imbued, really, with the stuff of legend. And I liked, too, the fact that within the church itself, um, Beckett's reputation is quite a divisive subject um, to the extent that some feel that he chose to be a martyr and others believe he was exactly what you saw. And... What then intrigued me was the idea of an opera about the two men, because all great opera is about psychology, events, relationships. These are the most powerful elements that you can bring to the stage in opera, and music can frame um, conversation, real relationships, love and hatred, but it can also get underneath the surface and show you another element that is possible, that perhaps words would make trite. So you can show a sympathy for someone, even though they might be saying something that appears to be unsympathetic. Music has that ironic additional power to the word. That relationship, to me, was one of the great relationships in English history, which went painfully, badly wrong. And my instinct, too, is that Beckett's taking the Archbishopric of Canterbury was a crisis for him. He knew it was. He said it was a crisis long before he finally accepted it. And he knew that because it was going to touch him at a level that he hadn't allowed anyone to touch him or he'd never had to show before. And in Henry's case, he regretted the whole episode for the rest of his life. So there was a very powerful story in there, and it was a, a fantastic privilege, actually, to do it in, in Canterbury Cathedral. The music of, of Delius, whose opera, Quanga, you're, you're conducting here, um, as was often considered to be quintessentially English, and yet uh, his family background is German. Tell me a little bit ab- about Delius and his life and, and what it is in his music that attracts you. I was talking to Errol Girdleston, who's a wonderful chorus master here, and I've I've known him uh, for a number of years on and off, but it's been lovely getting to know him because we've been talking about this, the the impact that Delius had on us and the way that um, every musician grows up um, having contact with Delius. It's very attractive indeed to young musicians. Um, There's a sound world that is um, immediately romantic, Um, Julian Lloyd Webber talks about his love of nature. It's nature music. Um, But in purely musical terms, he's a a romantic chromaticist, loves chords, which is the vertical way of thinking about things. And, of course, jazz is full of vertical um, energies, you know, the chord, slushy. Delius appeared to us teenagers to be slushy, and God, don't you love a bit of slush? Now, I was introduced to pieces like Sea Drift, which Alan Wicks, the organist at Canterbury, did with the Choral Society and the Cathedral, and it completely overwhelmed me. Um, the sounds, the, the tenderness, 
This is something that people don't often talk about, I think. The tenderness in Delius's sounds. When he gets bombastic, and he has to on occasions, and especially in an opera like Kainga, it's the least successful part of it. It's the tenderness of the harmony and the melodic lines. I can talk about influences, if you like, and I'm afraid Delius does show quite a lot of influences and uh, critics don't agree though on one 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 point they'll say well this is Wagner and another well this is Strauss although Strauss Strauss didn't have any time for Delius at all Um, but the truth of the matter is that they were sharing a world where lyricism and um, harmony were both of paramount importance now Berg might be might want to be lyrical but not in a way that you can actually sing the melodic ideas. With Delius, you do come away with a profound feeling for his love of song and outpouring. So, having recorded all his songs with Mark Stone, I think what I really feel is that Delius was open all the time to new influences, And the songs are a vastly varied array of form, style, textures. Sometimes they're very thin. Sometimes the songs are very Germanic. Sometimes they're very uh, like Greek. Sometimes they're very simple. Sometimes very rich. My, My feeling about him is that he got up every morning and wanted to be stimulated and he simply wasn't wasn't ashamed of going anywhere his interest went now of course the main criticism of Delius is that and I I think I trace it in your saying quintessentially English it's uh, rather like uh, you know Vaughan Williams wallowing around in a in a ploughed field is that form or the rigor of form it really wasn't a prime consideration for Delius However, I'm much more sympathetic to allowing Delius to roam where perhaps others shouldn't. I would also say that uh, I think Vaughan Williams was one of the most innovative of symphony writers formerly. So give a composer a chance and they will show you something that's really considered now, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that I, I will return to the Song of Summer or Seadrift um, every, every month for the rest of my life, but they are overwhelming experiences. They, are, they could only be, have been written by Delius. Stephen Barlow, the opera Coanga then, uh, which you're conducting here at, at, at Wexford, a rarely performed piece, uh, a rather exotic story. Yeah, to be honest, um, when David Agler asked me to consider conducting Koenga, yes, great, thrilling. But, uh, you know, a couple of days later, I was saying exactly, using exactly the word you did, exotic, and I was also saying it's mad, bad and wild, because all of these things are exactly what it looks like from any perspective. If you look at the number of performances, well, there was one in, there was some in 2007 in, in Sadler's Wells by a small opera company. Um, so you'd think, well, for goodness me, there's an awful lot of people who actually quite like Delius. And uh, um, there's an awful lot of companies, you know, um, that, that could do it. Nope. So it's been effectively binned and the, the filing cabinet was locked. So, exotic? Well, yes, it's, it's set in Louisiana. 
ostensibly, Karanga is really about love with a secondary level of narrative, which um, is a very heartfelt and very serious look at slavery and the human spirit, how the human spirit can possibly survive. Now, Delius had several choices here about uh, how he was going to try and show the sympathy for the plantation workers called slaves in the score, at the same time as really trying desperately, as every composer wants to do once in their lifetime, to show real love in, in, in its most passionate and spiritually true way. It's the Tristan and Desolda thing. And you, to be sure, Delius uh, makes very faint, elusive um, references to the music in Tristan. And the shapes are also, the, the big shapes, the waves that break over the piece constantly, the big shapes of the scenes are Wagnerian in the way that they develop organically. Now, it's quite difficult to make an opera like this work simply, I think, because you you have to bear in mind that he was influenced by this and he desperately wanted to do it himself. Dramatically, he shortcuts sometimes. Uh, some of the principles of the characters actually depict what's actually happening off stage. They tell you very, very quickly um, he's doing this and he's being this. And, uh, and, and dramatically, and as a composer, I find myself wishing that perhaps he and Yelka, his wife, had actually worked out a way of getting the libretto slightly more tightly constructed um, and thought around the obstacles sometimes. However, the drama is there and the passion is there. There's no question about that. And what, what you have really are these two perspectives all the time. It's rather like two spotlights. You can imagine a, a very stripped-down concert performance of it with just spotlights on Koanga and Palmyra, the two lovers, and the other spotlight on, on the plantation workers because the Delius introduces um, spirituals based, of course, on his um, experiences down in Florida when he was working there as a young man. And the, the, the other characters... The overseers Martinez, the owner, and Perez, the the slave master, simply come into both worlds. Um, but it is those two worlds that interest him, and it's those two worlds that uh, that the audience will go out after seeing a performance uh, with a very vivid memory of. I know they will take away something very te sensitive and tender from seeing this piece. That's what I hope, anyway. Um, to a certain extent, it's it's quite difficult for us now in this day and age. In fact, we have a we have a, a, a feeling in the rehearsal room of not wanting to refer to slaves. All the artists are very we, we, we're very sensitive to to a lot of things that are going on in the world at the moment, um, and it's that side of it will not be comfortable. At least it it, it shouldn't be comfortable. And perhaps that's a good thing in an opera too, that, that we in the audience are confronted with perhaps our sense of expectation, that being shattered slightly, uh, with what we 
uh, now believed to be correct uh, politically or otherwise and and reality and the complexity at times of reality and also reality within a, a, a given time frame there have been very few composers that didn't write operas which are supposed to educate us some operas are supposed to shock us in the early days of course Mozart had to be extremely careful Alban Berg's Lulu still absolutely horrifies modern audiences and uh, uh, yes I think probably this of his operas has a clear almost pedagogical attitude within it um the only the only difficulty of course for modern audiences is, is that we we've got less willing to go to the opera house to be challenged by a piece like this of course um we're unwilling to be challenged in the way that some directors challenge us with masterpieces of uh, 18th 19th centuries but I hope that the audiences here will just drop exotic, mad, bad and wild and the preconceptions um, that they might have uh, read about if they do read about before seeing this and and will let the composer and Michael Gileto, who's a wonderful director, show them um, a really sensitive and heartfelt piece. Stephen Barlow... Opera rehearsals. Uh, it's a complex process. And uh, at what point do you come in and how closely do you work, for instance, with the director? The, the whole business of opera in the first place is fraught with uh, difficulty and complexity. Music and the word um, are two um, overpoweringly singular arts. And to stuff the two together and put it on a stage in a way that uh, makes sense, is very complex indeed. So in this case, you see, the relationship between the conductor and director, for me, is very important, simply because I like to be at every production rehearsal when we rehearse the moves, the motivations, and the, so that I develop a pacing of it and so that I can follow every nuance that the actor, singer, and that the director are, are looking for. And sometimes you have to say, oh, that, that I, I can't stretch a point in the music to that extent. Or, well, actually... I can change what I think about this so that it works. But in order to do that, you you have to have a high expectation of a director's um, similar interest. When director and conductor are collaborating, then every principal, everybody on stage, we're all the way down to stage managers and technical crew, uh, principal's chorus, um, they all breathe a sigh of relief. I always like to be in touch with the director before we begin. And so Michael and I exchanged correspondence. We were going to meet, but we never did. But we exchanged um, emails, and I think we both understood that we were both collaborative artists. When I first met him, we automatically felt and showed um, respect, and, and I also like him, and I think he's rather rather brilliant. It's a difficult piece to produce. A lot of directors might have said no. So from the point at which you all come together, 
the first thing to do is to set out some very broad musical parameters. I want all the artists to grow into what they do, and I want to hear what they can do and what they can't do. You can't go too slow if, if it's crucifying a singer. Put it as simply as that. So you set parameters and you get to know each other. The next step, of course, is is to put it on the floor and begin to work out how everything relates. Seeing as this is Wexford, I would say that this is a phenomenal hive of activity, this festival. There are three opera companies, all arriving pretty much at the same time, although it's been slightly staggered. This is um, never done anywhere. Um, luckily, they have the theatre technically before we start, so... We've rehearsed completely the wrong way round for me. <laughs> it's been... It, we were on stage on the third day in this theatre, looking at doors and walls and balconies, whilst um, I was sort of sitting there waving at singers and saying, oh, gosh, do you know this? Um, look, it goes a bit quicker here. So we're just about to settle down today as the other operas begin to get on stage and begin the gradual patching together of ideas and finding the organic way forward to produce a narrative that is clear and informative and also giving the music's drama enough room to inform the purely dramatic aspects. Did you love opera from early on? No, of course I didn't. I, I, I didn't get it at all. I spent a great deal of time playing chamber music and organ music and writing music and concerts. And, you know, I was like everyone else, I guess, a, a sound addict. And opera to me seemed incomprehensible. I liked bits from the operas. And to tell the honest truth, I was taken to see Tristan by... Uh, well, a group of us went down from Cambridge to see Tristan. And I thought it was absolutely irredeemable terribly dull and boring. I didn't get a single thing about it. I can tell you the, a different story about Martin Isep, of course, who, who taught me such a lot at Glyndebourne. He was head of music staff. A wonderful man. And Martin, of course, grew up with a family in Vienna that had a box at the opera. So from the age of five or six, he was in the box watching Figaro, um, Don Giovanni, and he said it was fantastic. I took my toys in. Uh, when the restatives were on, I stood up and watched the drama, and when the arias were on, I sat down and played with my toys again. Two different, totally different upbringings. You, for me, it was looking for a way to make some regular money, to be honest. When I was, I was doing freelance work, uh, but uh, I had no regular money, so I, I took a job as a repetitor with Kent Opera for a season and worked, uh, played for productions of Jonathan Miller, his on Yegin, um, Elijah Mashinsky, Soralio, Jonathan did also a Cosi Fan Tutte. My eyes were suddenly open. And then going to Glyndebourne a year later as a pianist, which I did for a year and then started conducting the year after, it was like an earthquake, really. Uh, seeing the way that John Cox constructed a framework of props, furniture, in Schweizermafrau and Arabella, and seeing the way that artists brought such detail to one phrase, and the way that they could change a phrase, change an inflection of a phrase, to show something completely different. And the way this, this all built up into totally compelling theatre completely bowled me over. Your talk, the talk you're giving here at Wexford, uh, the annual Dr. Tom Walsh lecture, which will be on Saturday, the, the, the 24th of October. In a sense, you almost 
want to take on preconceptions about opera and challenge them in that talk? It's very interesting to me to begin to analyse exactly what conductor and a director bring and where they start. What you, you see, I told you earlier on the way that I look at an opera is that I begin to turn the page of the score and that's all well and good. I know some directors who will order the score and the CD. There, there aren't that many of them, though, because their natural responsibility is to look at the libretto and look at the dramaturgy, this rather cumbersome elephant word. And nowadays, we talk quite a lot about whether an opera is successful or not based on its dramaturgy, which uh, irritates me slightly because on the front page of uh, an opera score is the name of the opera and then the composer. And the librettist, I've known lots of librettists, I've dealt with some, and um, librettists are relegated to um, libretto by. And a lot of composers uh, chose to write their own, uh, Charpentier, Wagner famously. So these two approaches demonstrate really the problem that is opera in the first place. And the way opera grew, I think, is a rather interesting way of, of looking at the importance of music, the importance of words, and the importance of the audience. What were they looking for, and how have audiences changed in what they are asking for when they come to see a performance? Audiences have changed radically over the centuries. And, of course, there are many examples of how audiences affected composers not necessarily in a good way, like the Paris audience. You, um, something like Goulot's Faust it, it is now known in its pretty much overinflated version, um, rather than the opera comique version, which was much, much more dramatic. You, Verdi, of course, and Rossini had to put in great scenes of ballet. Can you imagine Aida done now without all of the panoply that audiences required of the first audiences and then later audiences. So what fascinates me is, is the way that opera has survived, although it's been cut, lacerated, from a very great moral height as well, a very great uh, intellectual height. There's a lot of snobbery about opera. Richard Strauss's greatest operas are referred to very snobbishly by, by many as bourgeois. And then we come to the present day, and what we have is, a, is an in interesting paradox. In London at the moment, it is teeming with new contemporary music theatre. You can go out every night of the week and see some new piece of music theatre, either at the Arcola or a Grimebourne Festival, um, the tunnels at Waterloo. Now, this is not opera as we know it. Um, where I'm concerned... I would like to see much more of these works being developed so that, it, and this will only happen if, if a real interest is taken by the audience. So is our audience going to revert to where it was in, even in Mozart's day, which is they come to applaud something they expect to know? I think at the moment our audiences are tending to push us into a, into a bit of a hole at the moment. I suppose one of, of the good things about Wexford is, is that uh, it gives audiences an opportunity to see and hear lesser-known operas, indeed like Kwanga. But in 
Buxton at the Buxton Festival, which you direct. There's, a, I suppose, a similar emphasis on less well-known work and the presentation of that and, and I suppose, the respecting of so much that isn't popular but may even be great. Um, what we see at Buxton is is an audience that that does really come with an interest to be introduced to new work from from a position of uh, quite a you know position of of knowledge. They tend to read before they come, and they they tend to talk to want to talk to you about it. They, when I said we were doing Leonora, I, within a nanosecond, uh, you know, uh, someone said, "What, eighteen oh six or eighteen oh five? And uh, I, I said, "Thank you for that, eighteen oh five. Better to be prepared." So. The thing that we're lacking in Buxton is the spirit in which we could, for example, put on a production like Koanga, because uh, this is not going to be a naturalistic production. Our audiences in Buxton tend to prefer a naturalistic production for a lesser-known work. And that can be difficult sometimes, because lesser-known works are lesser-known usually for a good reason. So one does need a director and a conductor with a lesser-known work to inject quite a lot of energy. It's horses for courses. What we couldn't do uh, in Buxton is put on repertoire that happens in Wexford. (laughs) You know the opera scene in Ireland pretty well. You've worked here good deal over the years. You were artistic director of, of Northern Ireland Opera. You worked with Opera Ireland, Dublin Grand Opera, the Ulster Orchestra. And indeed, last year here in Wexford, uh, you conducted that great new Irish youth opera company, the Rape of Lucretia. Is the opera scene here, as you observe it, very different to, to Britain? What, what happens really with young singers and young directors and young conductors is that they all flock to London and they will simply put stuff on and get an audience of 110 people in, in the Cypriot Church or, uh, you know, um, the Peacock Theatre. And they'll be plying their trade, not making much money, but the critics are going and players are available to come and do minimal rehearsal and you you know it's the way young musicians call them young turks if you like because they are allowed to do what they like when they've put 500 quid of their own money into it and um they're doing all the advertising so i think there's a there's a difference there i i remember talking to a, a young conductor Who's, uh, who assisted me on Lucretia, Killian, uh, trying to persuade him to brook no opposition, simply kidnap players, to put stuff on, get the experience, build up an awareness. I know Michael Durvin would come in the same way that Rupert Christensen goes to see and reviews. He won't, he won't necessarily go to Glynmore to see a production he's not interested in. I'd like to see Dublin much more open to that. There is a problem, though, I know, in that um, young singers and musicians will too readily leave. This is something that I think Colette McGann's Irish Youth Opera addressed some of this problem, which was to bring back quite a lot of singers who were either just on the cusp of leaving to do their postgraduate and uh, opera school and begin trying, you know, searching for chorus work here and there. And I was very proud of what, what they achieved. 
it was a terribly good example of how good the basic training and um, and the passion for it is here in Ireland. I think it's quite complicated. I understand that, but I do not perceive a will from within government to underpin the development of the art form of of opera. Um, It's the energy of young musicians and young players and directors that the future of opera will be built upon in in, in future generations. And to see Opera Ireland actually um, vanish really hurt me a great deal. So I'm I'm not happy with what I see, and I imagine I share that's shared with most musicians and uh, singers. I was speaking there with Stephen Barlow, composer and conductor of Coanga by Frederick Delius, the opening opera of the forthcoming Wexford Festival Opera 2015, which runs from the 21st of October until the 1st of November. Further information on the festival is available from wexfordopera.com. On next week's Arts Tonight, Sheila Brannock-Lynch, art historian, writer and former curator of Irish art at the National Gallery of Ireland, on her book, 50 Works of Irish Art You Need to Know. Also this weekend, as part of the 2015 Dublin Theatre Festival, I'll host a free admission Arts Tonight event on Saturday at one o'clock in the Project Arts Centre on the art of sound and the theatre. Contributors will include Dennis Clossey, Alma Kelleher, Carl Kennedy and Tom Lane. To book seats, contact dublintheatrefestival.com. Join us next week. Good night. Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods, is produced by Cleon and the Onloon.